can afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make is a trade-off against something else. And that's true not just of how you spend your money, but also how you spend your time, your focus, your attention, your energy, any limited resource in your life that you need to manage. That leads to two questions. Number one, what kind of life do you want? What matters most to you? Number two, how do you take daily actions that reflect that? Answering these two questions is a lifetime practice, and that is what this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I'm the host of the Afford Anything podcast. And today, Grant Baldwin joins us to talk about how he quit his job even when he had zero money in the bank and his wife was four or five months pregnant and then transitioned into a brand new career in which he became self-employed and turned into a creative entrepreneur. The reason that I love Grant's story is because I hear from so many people who want to quit their jobs. They're burned out. They're over it. They think their talents and skills would be put to much better use somewhere else, doing something else, possibly even working for themselves. But they're scared to make the transition. And Grant's story, where he was broke, his wife was four or five months pregnant, and he was like, you know what? I'm done. Can't do this anymore. I'm out. With basically no savings, I mean, it's an incredibly scary step to take. But he felt that it was right. He trusted that things would work out. And he hustled and worked odd jobs, worked bridge jobs when he had to, in order to live his best life now and create his best career and his best company now instead of deferring his best life 10 years into the future. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from Grant's story. In his particular case, he wanted to be a speaker, but the broader lessons of his story are applicable to anyone who's interested in quitting their job and transitioning into something else, particularly anyone who wants to become some type of creative entrepreneur. So with that said, here is Grant Baldwin sharing the story of how he quit his job at the worst possible time. Oh, one more thing. Before we get to today's interview, I want to make a note that at the end of the episode, starting at roughly around the 65-minute timestamp, I'm going to talk about some of the current events that are happening right now. We're recording this in February of 2020. The stock market has just taken a 13% plunge. A lot of people are asking, should they buy on the dip? And so... We'll talk about all of that at the end of today's episode. So with that said, here is Grant Baldwin discussing career change and creative entrepreneurship. Hi, Grant. Hello, Miss Paula Pant. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you doing? It is great to talk with you. And uh, I know we've crossed paths over the years and we see each other at conferences and that sort of thing, but I'm excited to chat today. This will be fun. Absolutely. I've known you and known of you for many years. And today, Grant, you're a successful speaker living in Nashville, living the dream with your family and a great career. How did all of that begin? Take us back to college age, Grant. My first career after college was working at a church as a youth pastor. And so I did that for about a year and a half. Parts of it I liked, parts of it I didn't like. One of the things I really enjoyed, though, was speaking. And one of the things I, I didn't like is it was difficult in the sense of like I felt like I was always on. Like it wasn't like I clock in and then I do my job and then I clock out and I go home. It was a lot of just time demand. And my wife was pregnant with our first child and nothing like bringing a kid into the world that just causes you to question everything. So I really just tried to figure out like, OK, what is this what I want to be doing with my life? Or if this is not it, what would I rather be doing? And so after we had left that position, let's see, when we left, my wife was four months, five months pregnant. 
um, with a first child, didn't have any like big savings, didn't have a big career thing lined up. And so naturally I had like a lot of people asking me like, Hey, have you thought this through? (laughs) The timing of this doesn't seem great. And hindsight, yes, it was bad timing. And so for the next several months, those next nine months, I was literally just kind of like, what am I doing with my life? Like, what is it that I really want to do? And I think that's important for, you know, anyone to think about because whatever, I kind of felt like, all right, I could, I could find another career thing and just keep going down that same path. But is that really what I want to do? And so kind of thinking through some of those bigger questions of, you know, assuming time, money, location were all irrelevant, assuming you were guaranteed success, like, what do you, what do you really want to do? And, and that's where like speaking was the thing that kept coming up for me on my radar is something I, I wanted to do. And so I think it's, again, one of those questions that is valuable for anyone to think through is like, if you don't enjoy like a lot of what you're doing, there's always going to be parts of it that you don't enjoy. It's just part of it. It's nature of the beast. But if you don't like get excited about Monday mornings and you're not just looking forward to it, then what would you rather be doing? Thinking about that and really asking some of those bigger questions led me to get into doing more speaking. Let's pause on that decision to quit your job with very little savings when your wife is four or five months pregnant. Tell me about your mindset at that time. What were the weeks leading up to that? So I can tell you where um, ultimately where I felt like part of the decision was made. Like I'd been having this conversation with my wife. Like I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I remember one time I came home. I I was gone a lot of nights. You know, as a youth pastor, I was like uh, attending a student's sporting events or various things. There's some type of function or something. I had to be at a, a church or just various things. I was just I was just gone a lot. And so I remember I came home and um, my wife was just in tears. She's like, I just feel like I have a roommate. I don't have a husband. Like I barely see you. You're gone all the time. I was just tired. I was just mentally fried. And I was like, yeah, like something's got to change. And I, I think that's really key for a lot of people because people, people may be listening going like, yeah, I get that. I've been in that part. And you just kind of suck it up. And that's the way it is. And I'm just, I was kind of like, but is it like, is that the way it has to be? Or is there, is there a different way or better way? And so the timeline of what ended up happening was I ended up going to my boss and saying like, man, listen, like, you know, I'm not slacking, you know, I'm busting my butt, you know, I do a great job, but I'm exhausted and I'm dying and I'm not alone here. Like I know the, like the rest of the team runs like this and it's tiring. It's not, it's not sustainable long-term. And to his credit, like he's like, yeah, you're right. Let's make some changes and made some changes. And ultimately things pretty quickly went back to status quo. Mm. And so I, I was attending a conference at the time the church we were at, where we lived was in Missouri. I'd grown up there. All of our friends and family were there. Like you mentioned, we live in Nashville now. So coincidentally, I was attending this conference in Nashville. And I remember sitting in this session and I don't even remember who the speaker was. I don't even remember what the point of the workshop was, but I vividly remember him saying, if you don't enjoy at least 80% of what you're doing, you should quit. Hmm. And I remember thinking like, wait, what? <laughs> like Nobody enjoys 80% of what they're doing. Like that's not realistic. But I remember thinking, I remember, I still remember like leaving that room and calling my wife and saying, cause we'd already been having the conversation and saying like, okay, I think I'm out. I don't know what's next. And I know you're pregnant, but I know we're going to figure it out. So that's ultimately, and I, I came back and a week or two later, I turned in my resignation. And so I'd say my, my mindset was, probably a mix of like scared and anxious and confused and overwhelmed and frustrated, but also like hopeful and optimistic that 
working a, a job or doing a career just because people think that that's what you're supposed to do or that's the path that you're supposed to be on and just staying trapped there because, you know, we can all make the excuses of it's safe, it's secure, they have health insurance, I have a 401k, I have fill in the blank thing, you know, it's like, that's not a good enough excuse. Like I want to, when I decided I was going to pursue the speaking thing, I felt like I would rather this be a train wreck and know at least I tried than to get to the end of my life and be like, man, I think I could have given that a shot. Like I, I really, I think I could have made that work, but I'll never know because I didn't try. So in that sense, I was, I was optimistic. I was hopeful that we we're going to figure it out. Hmm. Tell me about that first day that you woke up now newly unemployed. What do you do? What's the first thing that you do? And how do you start structuring your days from that point forward? Very quickly, just had to find income, right? Yeah. Because like you said, like wife's pregnant, baby's coming, whether we're ready or not. And, you know, fast forward today, it's a very healthy, beautiful, awesome 13-year-old daughter who's amazing. But at the time, like, okay, I, I'm not getting a paycheck uh, this week, so I got to do something. And so for a little while... I, I worked a couple different odd jobs. I worked at a, I worked at a security company um, doing like residential home security systems like sales. Mm -hmm. and, and so did that for a little while. It was a hundred percent commission job, no guarantees or anything, but it was just kind of like feast or famine. Got to make this work. I worked at a couple different restaurants, like fine dining restaurants as a server, uh, which I really enjoyed. It was a lot of fun. Um, felt like I made decent money at uh, and had some flexibility. And so I was doing a couple of just like hodgepodge things that were not at all like, these are my dreams. These are my aspirations or, or career goals. It was just like, I'm going to give myself a minute to lick my wounds and also like a minute just to figure out, all right, I just need this to pay the bills for now. So got these things going. I'm doing these things, but this obviously isn't what I want to do. What do I want to be doing instead? And so those jobs were just to really buy me time, you know, just to, to figure out what it was that I wanted to do. Like I still to this day, I look back on like those several months of working all those odd jobs, new baby, financially is pretty thin, figuring out how to become a speaker. Like that was really, really tough. But at the same time, like that was incredibly, it was an incredibly pivotal period of life for sure. Did you find that the experience of having odd jobs required less of your time and energy than having your previous career? Well, it was different in the sense of like, you know, like I mentioned as a youth pastor, it was, I felt like I was always on versus like as a server at a restaurant, I would clock in, I would go wait on the tables, I would do my job, I would clock out, I would go home. And that was it. Like I did not go home thinking about the restaurant. I did not think about, you know, the unhappy customer or the big tip I got or whatever, like whatever happened on that night shift. Like I just, it was out of sight, out of mind. And so from that standpoint, it was really, really good because I was able to just, I go in, I do my job, I leave, I disconnect, I go home. And so it gave me kind of that mental break versus, because I was still like, I was working a lot of hours. I was working a kind of a, a couple different jobs. So it was still like a lot of hours, but I think like mentally, mentally I had more space and I knew mentally, I knew this wasn't permanent. I knew I was just buying myself time to figure out what I wanted to do. And so you'd reached burnout with your previous job and you had this, this dream of pivoting into a new career that would be more meaningful, but you had no experience in it. How did you get started and what issues came up? I'm assuming imposter syndrome probably hit you hard. What else was that experience like? I had done a lot of speaking as a youth pastor um, while I was kind of in that season of working a bunch of different odd jobs. One of the organizations I worked for was a company doing school assemblies for them. And so they would book school assemblies. I would go around and do that. They paid me peanuts to do it. Um, there's a bunch of different like uh, independent contractor speakers around the country. And there's just thousands of, uh, of assemblies that they would do and a bunch of speakers that would go out and do those. And so I was one of those. And I'd do, you know, a handful of assemblies a year for them. 
I worked for a seminar company doing seminars on, um, for the, again, just kind of, it was all their content, all their material. They'd book everything. I'd show up and, and just do the thing. And so I had a lot of speaking experience and I just felt like I really enjoy this and I, I just want to do more of this. But to your point, I had never really been paid on my own as someone hired Grant Baldwin to come in and speak and do the thing. And so I remember one big aha moment for me was there was a, a speaker I looked up to that I admired that I think it's always like as a pause in the story there for a second. I think it's always helpful to look for people who are doing something similar to you and doing it in a way that you want to do it, who are a step or two ahead of that. So let, let's break that down. People who are doing something similar and doing it in a way that you want to do it, right? So if I said, okay, I want to be a speaker. Well, there's a whole bunch of different speakers out there on a whole bunch of different topics, doing it a whole bunch of different ways. So if I said, you know, someone who's speaking a hundred times a year and they're doing, the, they're hosting their own events and I'm going like, ah, I don't want to do that many gigs and I don't want to host my events. I'd rather just be a hired speaker. Okay. So let's look for something more along those lines. And then the last part of it is looking for people who are a step or two ahead of you, not people who are light years ahead of you. So if I said, all right, I want to be a speaker. Who are some speakers out there? Let's see. Uh, all right, Tony Robbins, Tony Robbins is a speaker. Let's see what Tony's doing. Like we're not comparing apples and apples there. So we're talking about two totally different things. So I wanted to look for a couple people who are speaking at similar type of things. So for me as a former youth pastor, I had a lot of experience speaking to students. I wanted to keep speaking to students, uh, high school and college students. And so there was a, a couple of speakers who were doing that and, and one in particular that I'd emailed a few times and said, hey, I, I want to do this. How do I, how do I do this? And he mentioned, hey, I'm going to be speaking at some conference that uh, was about two and a half, three hours away from where I lived. He's like, you got to just drive up and see it. I was like, okay, I'm in. I'm going to do this. And so I remember driving up. We had dinner beforehand and then watching this. It was a big conference. And I remember watching the talk because I, I just wanted to try to get a sense of like, what was he talking about? And what's the interaction like? And how does this work? Um, and I felt like if I could see it, I think that would make sense. It's almost like if you wanted to be a blogger and you're like, I think I could be a blogger, but if I could just, if I could just follow a blogger around just for a day, I, I just want to just eavesdrop and watch and watch you type and do the thing. And then it helps me to connect the dots like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I could do that. And so that's kind of what I felt like at this event was hanging out with him beforehand, uh, talking with him backstage, watching him do a great job, hanging out with him afterwards while he was interacting with the client. And I immediately just felt the sense of confidence like, oh, yeah, I could do that. Not in a sense of like, oh, yeah, I'm perfect. I've got it all figured out. But like, no, no, like I'm realistic and self-aware enough to know that it's going to take work and effort, but I know I can get there. And so having that self-awareness of, I know I'm not the world's greatest speaker, but I'm confident that this is something I'm decent at and something that I think I could do. And so seeing an example of it gave me a lot of confidence that this is something that is realistic. Um, seeing someone who, again, who's a, a step or two ahead and helping me feel like, no, this is like, this is a realist. This is a thing. You know, I didn't see this on the menu. I didn't know that like being a speaker was a real thing. But now that I've seen some people doing it, not just looking at websites, but actually like meeting them and kind of seeing behind the curtain and seeing how the sausage was made. It kind of feels like, okay, I, I actually feel like this is a realistic thing that I could do. And so that's really what going to that first event, just being behind it, like I didn't speak at all, but just seeing him do the thing was like, yes, that's it. And I can do that. That makes absolute sense. It's a role model. It's proof of concept. It makes sense on many levels. Totally. And like fast forward, I did that exact same conference a couple of years later. I was hired to speak at it. And so it kind of came full circle of like, I remember being here and feeling like I can do that. And then I did it. And I was like, I knew I could do it. And I think like having the self-awareness is so important of being realistic. You know, it's, it's one thing. You know, like you and I were talking a little bit about real estate earlier, you know, so it's one thing to geek out on real estate and be like, I'm going to own a, the biggest portfolio ever in the world. And it's one another thing to be like, 
I can buy my first rental property. Like I, okay, I get it and I can dig into that and it seems intimidating, but then you do it and you're like, no, okay, I got this. I can figure this out. You know, it's like when you bought your first one, it feels crazy. And then you're like, oh, well that wasn't so bad. And then, then pretty quickly you buy your second, your third, and your fourth, and you start to build a little bit of a portfolio and this self-awareness of like, I don't have to build the biggest thing, but I'm realistic and self-aware enough that like I can do this and I can do it on my own terms and in the way that makes the most sense for me. Like that's the thing, whether it's real estate investing or speaking or whatever type of business or, or thing that you choose to do, you get to make the rules for the game. You get to decide what makes sense for you and what winning looks like. So as a speaker, there's speakers that I know that speak a hundred times a year and that's what they want to do. And there's going to be people listening right now. They're like, I don't want to speak a hundred times a year, but I wouldn't mind speaking five times a year. And it's not that one is better or worse than the other. It's just, you decide what winning looks like for you for, you know, like when it comes to real estate, there's people who are like, I want to own a thousand properties. I want to have a thousand doors and that's fine. And others that say, I want to have one and that's plenty. And that's also fine. It's not that one's better or worse. But again, you have to decide what makes sense for you and what it is that you're trying to accomplish, you know, professionally or personally. At the beginning of the journey, do you have enough knowledge to be able to make that decision? And not just you, but any person listening who's thinking about making a career change. I think about it this way. I remember seeing this analogy. I think this is in... There's a book called um, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've read it. It's about writing. And one of the analogies she uses, it's kind of like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as the headlights will show you, but you can make the entire journey that way. And I think that's no different than in writing as it is for entrepreneurship or just life in general, that the reality is, is like we're recording this on this certain date and we, <laughs> I can tell you what my calendar looks like for the next, you know, couple days, couple weeks, kind of have a sense of what things look like. But like a year from now, a couple years from now, I have zero clue. I can only see as far as the headlights will show me, but I know that I can make the entire journey that way. And so you are, you're never guaranteed success. Like I think that's really important to note is some of it is like you're, you're figuring it out as you go. Like here, here's a quick example, a story. This happened a couple of years ago. I, you mentioned I, I live in Nashville. There's an, this entrepreneurial like breakfast meetup that happened. And, and so I attended this and went to this and several friends that were there. And, and there's this one guy that I knew there who he had kind of this side hustle he'd been working on for a while. And he had just quit his corporate job. He had gone all in on the side hustle. So this was one of the, his first days being self-employed, doing his own thing. And so I remember asking him, I said, dude, you're, you're doing it. Like you're, you're all in. How do you feel? How, how are you doing? And I remember him saying like, I am excited. I'm anxious, I'm nervous, I'm scared, I'm thrilled, I'm overwhelmed, I'm, I'm all of the above, right? The huge gamut of emotions there. And I remember telling him, I said, I said, listen, I mean, at this point, like I've been self-employed for like 13 years. That doesn't go away. Like I feel pretty confident in what we're doing. I feel like we have a really solid business, but I still feel the same doubts and fears and insecurities. And like you're just, you're, those never fully subside. Hopefully they get a little quieter, you get a little more confident, but you still like every entrepreneur, every person is making it up as we go. We are doing the best we can with what we have at that moment, but we are not guaranteed success at all. Like my whole business, my whole life could come crashing down at any moment for things that were way beyond my control that I had. Not, it wasn't because a bad decision or anything happened or didn't happen. It's just like things happened that were outside of my control. And so just recognizing that Again, you can only see as far as the headlights will show you. You're not guaranteed success today or, or any days into the future, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't at least try and you shouldn't at least start to take some steps toward where it is that you want to be versus just staying comfortable with where you are. Hmm. There are many people who want to transition into some type of creative career, like 
being a writer or being a speaker or being a musician or an artist. How did you, in your story, how did you know what to speak about? Yeah, I think some of it is, again, going back to like the models piece of looking for people who are already doing something similar. Because just because you're passionate about something or just because you want to to speak on something or write on something or do some type of art or a creative endeavor around something, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's an actual market for that. And so that was really helpful to find other speakers who, again, were doing something similar. And not just, again, generic speakers but look for people who are who are doing it in a way that I wanted to do it for the type of audiences. Because it just, again, validated to me, like, okay, this is actually a thing, right? And so it kind of, let's go back to the real estate example for a second. I remember talking with our mutual friend, Brandon Turner, who uh, helps run Bigger Pockets and is the voice of the podcast over there. And I remember talking to him at this conference you and I attend on an annual basis. And, and I remember talking to him like, okay, this a couple years ago, I was interested in real estate investing. I wanted to get started. And I, I remember asking him, I was like, okay, if I want to get into real estate investing, you have single family, you have multifamily, you have apartments, you have storage units, you have Airbnb, you have raw land, you have commercial unit, you have like all these different things. And I remember asking him, which one is best? <laughs> and I remember him saying, yes, they all work. And he's like, you can find an example with all of them. So if you said, okay, I just, as a, as a real estate person, all I want to do is I want to focus on, you know, this, I don't know, some type of obscure type of thing. Well, then one of the things you want to do is like browse around and see, can you find anybody that's doing that? Because if you can't, that's probably a bit of a red flag, right? So like for speakers, what I always say is like, look for other speakers who are doing something similar. And if you can't find anyone, the mistake that speakers make is they think like, oh, that's awesome. Like this is an untapped need. I'm going to be the first. It's like, no, 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 no. If you can't find anyone, there's a reason for that. So look for existing opportunities in the marketplace. Because if someone's already being hired to talk on a certain thing or create a certain art or deliver a certain service, then there's probably more customers like that out there in the marketplace that you could potentially solve their problem. So I think that's one of the best things to do is just look for other people who are doing something similar. And if they are doing something similar, then again, that gives you at least some level of validation that this is an actual thing in the marketplace people are willing to pay for. Mm, that there is demand. Totally. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right. So what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a pretty big down payment on your next car. Maybe you're saving for a kid's college fund or for your own college fund. Well, there's an app called Monarch that makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. In fact, the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. 
Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design. They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You, know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly, but you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own. And Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search, it's to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform that has over 350 million global monthly visitors. It allows you to schedule, screen, and message so that you can connect with candidates faster. And beyond just hiring faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, which means Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Whenever I hire somebody inside of Afford Anything, I'm doing so because we are already overloaded with work. We have way too much on our plates, and so we need to hire so that somebody can start taking some of that stuff off of our plates. But hiring itself is added workload on top of already busy workload. So it's great to have a platform like Indeed that helps you hire faster and find higher quality matches. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With a lot of creative careers, um, again, speaking and writing being the two that come to the forefront of my mind, there are unfortunately a lot of potential clients out there who, especially for beginners, ask them to work for free or ask them to work for a token stipend sure. under the guise of you'll get some exposure. Yep. Tell me about your thoughts on that and what your experience with that was like. Yeah. You know, I hear people who sometimes say like, oh, you should never do anything for free. That's a horrible idea. You know, you're setting the bar. This is what it's like to work with you, yada, yada, yada. I actually disagree with that. What I would say would be it's okay to speak for free as long as you know why you're doing it. Don't just speak for free. Don't just deliver your art for free out of the goodness of your heart. So I think about it like this. There's a a good book you've probably read called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Mm -hmm. And so he uses the analogy of someone running a bakery. And he says, just because someone is really, really good at baking pies, and they're a great baker, 
being a great baker and running a bakery are two different skill sets. And so the mistake that a lot of artists make, and I use artists just, you know, big picture and air quotes, we just, we want to give our art away. We just want to help people. Like my pies are the best. I just, and I just like speaking, speaking's fun. So I just want to do all the things for free. But the reality is, is if you just give all your art away, if you just speak for free, if you give everyone your pie for free, you're going to be out of business and you can no longer afford to speak. You can no longer afford to bake pies. You can no longer afford to make your art. Mm. So you have to charge for the value that you receive. Now, having said that, the value that you receive can come in a lot of different forms. So as a speaker, if you are providing value, you need need to receive value in exchange for that. Now, let's talk about some of the different ways that you can receive value that go beyond whether or not you get a check. One of the ways that you get better as a speaker is that you speak, and this is no different than anything else. The way that you get better as a writer is that you write. And so it may make sense for you to speak at something just for the practice, just for the at-bats. It may make sense for you to speak for free if you have some type of product or service to sell on the back end, if you offer some type of coaching or consulting, or if you have a book to sell or something like that. Maybe you speak for free, but you pick up some clients from that or a bunch of people buy your book. And so you're able to point to uh, revenue that was generated because of you speaking. So you have that side of it. It may make sense for you to speak for free if you know that there's going to be people in the audience who are looking for speakers who may be interested in what it is that you have to offer. If the event planner will introduce you to other event planners who may be interested in hiring you to speak, maybe it's just a cool location that you want to visit. Like my wife, half joking, half serious, always just kind of pawns me off and, and farms me out and says, hey, Grant will speak for free in Hawaii if you'll pay for the family to come along, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, a, a buddy of mine, he uh, last year spoke at something in Europe and the budget was a little bit lower than what he would have liked. He doesn't speak a ton, so he was kind of asking what to do about it. I said, you need to ask if they can give you some additional nights at the hotel and if they can pay for your wife to come along. And they did. And then he's like, I ended up turning it into a European vacation. Like that's something of value to me. Mm. So I'll give you a concrete example of this. There's a, a conference, again, we've kind of been alluding to. You and I attend on an annual basis. The first year I attended that, they did not pay me at all. In fact, most years they have not paid me. So I go and I speak at it. I had to pay my own way. They did not pay me anything to come. So immediately, as soon as I show up, I have lost money to be there. Mm -hmm. But because of that, I do a workshop talking about speaking, some of the stuff that we've covered here, and ended up having you know several people who bought our course and people who joined some of our, our programs. And I can point to, and in fact, that workshop went really, really well. And the event organizer heard about it and said, hey, we want you to come back next year and do the keynote where I was paid to come back. And so I, I can point to that free workshop and say, I can attribute thousands and thousands of dollars in revenue to that one speaking engagement. Yet the event planner did not give me a dime for that one particular event. And so again, the point being that you are providing something of value, and so you need to get something of value in return. And sometimes that comes in the form of a check, and sometimes that can come in the for- in other forms of value. Mm, right. And that applies to anybody who goes into any branch of creative entrepreneurship, whether it's speaking or writing or art or music or baking. Absolutely. Because you're right. There are people who will say, well, you're going to get a lot of exposure. And 90% of the time, that's baloney. But there are times where like, that is true. Like you are going to get exposure. But like if someone says that to me, I have to know that it 
A, that that's accurate and they're not just blowing smoke, but B, it's the exposure to the right type of audiences that I'm looking for. So if they said, hey, there's if I knew for a fact that like there's going to be a bunch of event planners, if I'm trying to book a bunch of gigs, speaking gigs, and I know at this one particular event, there's going to be a lot of event planners in the audience. And I know that if they see me speak and they're looking for a speaker like me, which I think they are, there's a good chance that some of them are going to book me. That may be very much worthwhile for me to go speak at that for free because it's at that point, it's less about, oh, I did my art for free. No, no, it's more of like a, a marketing expense, so to speak, marketing investment that I'm going to do this with the intention that I'm going to generate additional business out of this. You can't just go for free, go for free, go for free and hope it magically works out like that just doesn't work. You've been doing this now for 13 years. And one of the themes that you've talked about quite a bit is how to deal with burnout and with feeling like you're always on. In your early career, you felt like you were always on. And of course, now that you're self-employed, you run your own company. The burden that a lot of entrepreneurs face is that same feeling of always being on, never being able to turn it off. Let's talk about some ways in which you handle that. Yeah. So one thing I'd say was was going back to one thing we touched on earlier is that you get to design the rules for the game. And so I think that there is kind of this uh, misconception that in order to be successful as an entrepreneur, be successful in your career in whatever facet that it looks like, that you have to work 80 hours a week or you have to sell your soul to be able to do this and you have to make all these sacrifices. And sure, there's like some sacrifices you got to make along the way. But again, you get to decide what makes sense for you. A good example of this, like a good company that I really look up to and admire is a company called Basecamp. And those guys, uh, Jason Fried and uh, his business partner, David Hansen, have written a couple of books on the topic. One of my favorite books is a book they wrote called Rework. And they talk about how we're going to do things unconventionally. Like we're going to do 40-hour work weeks and that's it. And we're going to take a lot of vacation and we're not going to work Fridays. And like we get to design the rules of the game. And so I really, really resonate like that. And so I, I tell our team all the time, like I want our business to keep growing. I want to keep helping as many people as possible. I want to keep making a lot of money. I want to keep doing these things as long as, and this is the big caveat, as long as we get to keep playing by our rules. So for example, for me, our family and I, we love freedom and flexibility and autonomy and we love trips and experiences and I love working from home. I don't want to go to an office. So all of our team is remote. We don't have an office. I don't ever want to have an office. I prefer to work from home and I get to decide the rules to that. And if all of a sudden it, it's something other than that, then I'm doing something wrong. It's slightly different if you are, you're the entrepreneur, you're the one that's in charge and you are, you're the one that's calling the shots versus if you're in a career and you're going like, good Lord, I just feel like I'm burning the candles at both ends. I'm exhausted. I go back to what we talked about at the beginning. Like I was in that spot and I ultimately walked away. So I get it that there's like, uh, and, and my wife was, uh, was four or five months pregnant. So I don't have any issue with saying like, if things are that bad, and you're considering like you need to evaluate if it's worth sticking around for. And if it is worth sticking around for, and you've kind of got these golden handcuffs, you have to recognize like that's a decision that you're making. Another good question I would challenge anyone to think about is if you're in the thick of it and you're starting to feel some burnout, I would ask, is this a season or is this the way it is? Hmm. Is this a season or is this the way it is? Because you think about like in any industry, there's going to be seasons. At this moment, at the time of this recording, I'm in book launch mode. And so I have been doing a lot of podcast interviews and doing a lot of things and activity to promote the book. But I also recognize this is a season. I've been telling myself, I've been telling my wife, I've been telling my kids, I've been telling my team, this is a season. It's not always like this, but at this moment, it's a little hectic, but it's not always like this. If you're an accountant, 
around tax season, it's just busy. Like that's just the way it is. If you're in retail, November, December, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, it's just busy. But you know it's not always like that. So you always have to ask yourself, is this is this a season or is this the way it is? Because if it's a season, you can write that out. But if this is the way it is, then you need to evaluate. Like something has to change. Something's got to be different here. Otherwise, like this is not sustainable. This is not something that that you can keep doing long term. You've talked about setting boundaries and writing the rules for yourself. How do you enforce these? I think I've gotten really good at saying no. Like I have no problem saying no. Like as entrepreneurs, especially, I think it's easy to want to chase opportunities and shiny objects. And there's no shortage of things that we we could be doing. I can think of a dozen ways that in our business right now, at this moment, we are leaving money on the table. But again, if we go back to but we're going to play by these rules. And if it, we're going to play by these rules, then that means we are going to inevitably, uh, there's an opportunity cost and there's things that we're not going to do in order to play by these rules. And we're okay with that. Well, I'm totally good with that. I'm going to sleep just fine tonight knowing that we say no to some of these things. Also recognizing that by saying no to things, you're going to disappoint people or you're going to let people down or you're going to have some FOMO that, oh man, if, if we did this or I see that person over there doing that and man, if we did that, but just recognizing, no, no, they're playing a different game. They design the rules to their game. You design the rules for your game. I'm going to design the rules for my game. And that all works. It's all fine. It's just really, really important to, if you create those boundaries, to follow those boundaries and to say no to things and say no even to like good opportunities. There's no shortage of good things, but you have to learn to say no and be okay with that. What about mental energy and attention? How do you keep from thinking about or ruminating on your work while you're away from work? I would say like I, I genuinely enjoy what it is that I do. And so because of that, I do spend a lot of time thinking about it. And so I do find myself at times like, ah, I'm just going to check this email or I'm going to uh, something the team's discussing in Slack. I'm just going to poke my head in here. So there, I, I go back to one of the things we touched on was there's seasons where it's more of that than others. And, and I also recognize like, OK, at this very moment, at the time of this recording, like I mentioned, we're in a busy season, but I also recognize in another few weeks, we'll probably be back to regularly scheduled programming and things will subside a little bit and it'll it'll be okay. And so I will probably have a lot more mental energy then on the business than I do now. I also recognize as a CEO of the business, and we don't have a huge company or a huge team, but I recognize like one of the best things that I can do is to think and just create white space on my calendar, which is hard to do because I don't know about you, Paula, but I operate off of list and checking boxes and like I did things. And so whenever it comes to something like thinking, it's hard to quantify, right? You can't just put like, um, or it feels weird to put like two hours on the calendar or 30 minutes on the calendar just for thinking. Thinking about what? But also most people recognize like some of your best ideas happen or some of your life-changing decisions happen when you are taking a shower or going for a walk or driving the car, or just thinking, and you're just pondering stuff, and just kind of like letting something marinate. So things taste better that are marinated, and things taste better if they're in a crock pot versus if they're in a microwave, because they're just sitting there. They're just stewing, and I'm just, they're just kind of kicking it around. So I try to spend, I know one of the best things I can do for our business is just, just to think. And again, that's not always in the form of, you know, I'm just blocking out tons and tons of time, just, just to think. But I just want to figure out where we're headed, how we keep playing by these rules. What are the rules of the game that we want to be playing by? How do I keep creating this mental white space so that it prevents burnout and it prevents getting to a point where we're just like, man, I've created this thing that like check some boxes, but like I hate it. Like I don't want to do that. If I want to, if I'm going to design the game, I want to make sure that it's still like a fun game that I enjoy playing. 
Assuming that you're not in a particularly crunch time season, how would any person listening to this be able to distinguish between when they're burned out versus when they're just frustrated or bored? So I was trying to think back to that youth pastor role I was in, where I talked with a couple other people internally, like that were on the team. I was like, hey, I feel like this. Am I the only one or does anybody else feel like this? So I remember having some of those conversations, but I also talked with some other people who were outside, like some buddies of mine who worked at other churches and, and I'm asking them like, hey, here's kind of how I'm feeling. Is this normal? Is this, am I weird in this? Am I alone in this? And I would say even fast forward to today, even though I'm an entrepreneur and work for myself, there's two or three really, really close friends that I have that we talk on a daily basis, just comparing notes and asking like, hey, here's kind of how I'm feeling and like things are really, really good or things are not or things are not going the way I hoped or I'm frustrated or I'm discouraged or I'm stressed or I'm worried or I'm anxious or whatever the feeling may be and trying to balance and determine like, is this a season? Is there something that's causing this that I can address or be aware of? Or is this like, man, you know, when I stop back and think about it, I've kind of been in this perpetual funk for a long time, at which point like something has to change, like whether it's something in the career or something different that you just like, I got it. I got to do something different because what I'm doing now is getting me the results that I have at this moment professionally and personally. And if I don't change, then nothing's going to change about those results that I'm getting. Uh, And so I found that that has been incredibly helpful just to have those trusted people around me that I can talk to. There's one guy I talked to entrepreneur, similar type of business model, different kind of industry. And we talk constantly on a daily basis. I was looking the other day, we will have days where we exchange over 200 text messages in a day. He lives 15 minutes away from me. We see each other multiple times a week, but we just text each other constantly. And a lot of times it's just thinking out loud or kind of venting, having someone like that, that can be a cheerleader for you, but also can just shoot straight with you and say like, what you're experiencing or what you're feeling right now is not normal or it is normal and you're fine. Hang in there. It's going to be fine. You got a couple more weeks of this and then you'll be all right. Or, hey, you seem out of sorts for a couple of months now. You know, let's talk this through. So having some of those trusted friends or colleagues or family members that just they can call your bluff and they can see through the crap and really challenge you on how you're doing has also been incredibly valuable and helpful. In the time that you spend away from work, do you find it to be more refreshing to spend that time engaged with outside interests or hobbies or to spend that time completely unscheduled, like blank? A little bit of both. Like one of the things I really enjoy is I really enjoy golf. I'm fairly introverted in general. So I like people, but I also don't mind not being around people at all. So golf is one of the things that I can go out and I can, you know, sometimes people do it from like a a social standpoint. Like I want to go play with a bunch of buddies or hang out. Like I, I just enjoy going to play by myself, actually. I also just enjoy experiences and travel and trips with my family. I have this, this conference that, <laughs> that we keep talking about that's a favorite of both of ours. This past year was in Washington, D.C. Uh, I brought my wife and my daughters with me. And so daddy spent part of the time working. But then we also like did the sites and museums and that sort of thing. And so that's one of the things that's really fun for us. But then there's also, I was thinking about like this past weekend, like I didn't do anything and we didn't accomplish anything and I didn't check any boxes and we were extremely lazy and that's okay. I'm a very motivated, driven, ambitious person, but I also recognize I'm not designed to go and go and go and go and do and do and do and gain and accomplish and achieve because I know like that's not sustainable and that's not healthy and that's not how you know we were designed to operate. I understand like 
when I drive my car down the road, there's a gauge on the dashboard that goes from an F to an E, and that gauge keeps dropping. If I do, don't do something about it, the car stops. I, I have to refill it. The same thing is true with a, a laptop or a cell phone. Like I, I got to charge my cell phone every single night because the battery's going to drain down. And so I got to have some like white space where I'm doing a hobby that's just that's fun, that's just for me, that's just some alone time, like swinging a golf club and playing this, this game that's, that's so fun and so frustrating at the same time. Or just being with my family or watching Netflix or vegging on the couch with the family or, or being lazy or any number of things and recognizing like all of that stuff, it may not always check a box, but it's also incredibly valuable for recharging and refilling the tank. How do you think about the trade-off between doing more work versus making more money? Like how do you weigh the relative merits of each one? And does it depend on which one of the two feels more crunched at the time? Given the choice... I would rather make more than less. And given the choice, I would rather work less than more. I enjoy work. I never want to get to a point like, I just want to retire and move to the beach and not do anything. And like, I, I genuinely enjoy what I do. But if I'm going to work, I would prefer to make more than less. And so it's always just kind of this battle. I think this comes back to the thinking piece and the strategy piece, but also just the saying no. There's plenty of things that we could do that would make more money, but may require too much work that makes it no longer worth it. And so you have to being able to weigh those things out. So one of the things I'm really conscious about is what are things that our business or company can do that doesn't depend on me for the fulfillment? For example, we do a lot of teaching and, and coaching for speakers and those that are interested in speaking. We teach people how to find and book speaking gigs. And so we have multiple coaches on our team. We have multiple people on our team who do different things because I know I can't do everything on my own. And so I want I want to make sure that we're building something in a way that is not the grant show. I tell our team all the time, like, this is not the grant show. And if the business is just dependent on grant showing up every day, then we're doing something wrong. And so I guess a quick example of this, this past fall, at the time of this recording, this past fall, uh, I took a, uh, a one-month sabbatical. I hear sometimes people who take you know, a week off or a couple weeks off or a month off or whatever, and they're thinking like, man, I'm just super burned out. I got to get away from the business. I didn't feel like that at all. I felt like we've had really good work-life balance and really like the work we're doing and the, the team that we have. But part of what I wanted to do was to do kind of a stress test on the business and say, okay, if we pull Grant out for a minute, a month specifically, let's see, how did things work? What breaks? What are things that fall apart? What are things that we, crap, we got to think this part through. We didn't think that part through. Um, what are those type of things that happen? And so that was really helpful to do that kind of stress test. Again, kind of a look at it through the lens of, all right, it's one thing to say, I don't want to build this based on me, but let's take me out of it and see what happens and figure out how do we continue to build something that's just not dependent on me so that, again, I can focus on the things that I do best that I think help ultimately drive and build the business. We'll come back to this episode in just a minute. But first, 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Like your hair, your net worth, I hope. Your income, your investment portfolio. Again, I hope, I hope. Hey, how about the revenue in the business that you run on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you just started or whether you've been in business for 10 years, whether you're selling accounting textbooks or windshield wiper repair kits, and whether you're selling in person or online. If you're online, know that Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can leverage AI with Shopify Magic, an AI-powered all-star. 
Now, what I like about Shopify is that it's there for you, whether you are just beginning or whether you are doing your first million in revenue, your first dollar to your first million plus. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. They have award-winning help and businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Paula, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Paula now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Paula. In the early days when your team might have been either just you or maybe just you plus one person or just you plus two people, when that staffing is a lot smaller, how at that time were you able to start transitioning out of everything depending on you? Yeah, so I think you have to be really, really clear about what are the things that only you can do. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Like one of the first hires that I made was a guy that helped, was just a, a part-time contractor. His name was Jeff. He lived up in Canada. He reached out and said, hey, I've got a lot of technical skills. And at the time, I think I was putting together like our first course. And I was like, I don't, like, I don't know how to make all these tools talk to each other and you know the different tools between like email marketing or we were doing some webinars at the time or like setting up a webinar and um, someone buys the course and so they go to this link and then it triggers this this and this and they buy this thing and then it causes this to happen and they get this email it's like i could probably figure it out but I, I know that like that's probably not the best use of my time so I hired him just to help make all of the things work and make all of the tools play nicely together that was an incredibly helpful and valuable hire that just freed up a lot of my time and mental bandwidth. Again, it was stuff that I knew that I, I could do or, or could potentially figure out, but I knew it wasn't the best use of my time or the hundreds of support emails that we get. I don't have to answer all of these. 80% of these, 90% of these are the same questions or the same things that we could probably train someone to help us with. And so just finding like, what are those things on a regular basis that don't depend on me that we could have someone else do and, and start to have people help in those positions. And I, I think that part about hiring is that people assume that, okay, if you're going to hire that, you know, you have to hire a full-time employee and what are you, how are you going to pay for them and how are you going to find enough work for them to do? And the reality is I didn't need full-time employees for a long time. It's only recently that we've started adding a couple of, of full-time employees and we're at multiple seven figures in business. For a long time, we've got to this point with a bunch of part-time contractors and no full-time employees because we just didn't, we didn't need it. Like I need this one person to do this one specific thing and that's it. And so don't feel like, you know, I have to have an employee or I have to do this, it has to be this overly complicated thing. Like it doesn't. Just figure out what's this one specific thing that you need and hire specifically for that role and exactly what you need versus feeling like, you know, you got to bring on people to do things like I don't even know if I need this but I just I need to hire someone like don't don't do that because that creates a big mess financially and you, you just you don't want to be biting off more than you can chew and how do you know the difference between pursuing growth versus biting off more than you can chew I think of this comes back to the being clear on this is how we're going to play the game sometimes I look around and I see friends or peers or colleagues who are building businesses who are going faster than we are, right? And so they're, they're hiring more or they're growing more or they're doing more. And I just try to think about, okay, but that's the game they're playing. That's the race they're running. Just because they're running that race doesn't mean I should be running that race. I've done a couple of half marathons and a couple of full marathons. One of the things that's really important when running is to pace yourself. Because especially at the beginning of a race, you can build up a lot of adrenaline and a lot of excitement and everybody's running fast. And so it's important to just say, no, 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 no all, let all those people go. Those people are running fast. That's good for them. But 
here's the race I'm going to run. And I'm going to run this race. And I'm going to run this pace. And I'm good here. And I'm fine. And they can go faster. And they're going to beat me. And that's okay. But I'm going to do this because this is what I define as winning. And so I think we've done a good job with that. I think we've been really intentional about that of saying, okay, here's an opportunity that makes sense. That's not going to be biting off more than we can chew. And we're going to hire this person to help with this thing. And we still have a dozen other things that we're not touching that we could do. We're not trying to pursue all those things. We may get to those someday. We may never get to those things, but that's not what I'm worried about. I'm looking at strategically at this moment right here, right now. Here's our next logical step that someone's going to take over. As entrepreneurs always think about if we're going to add something new, who's going to own that on the team? You know, so if we're going to do something like who's going to wear that hat? It's more than just like, all right, we're just going to do a bunch of stuff. We're all just going to figure it out. Like that doesn't work. Like if we're going to add something, then you got to think it through. Like there's going to be some ramifications of that. And is someone going to own that? And if they do own that, are there things that they're currently owning that they will no longer be able to own? And just being able to take inventory and evaluation of that and make sure again, that you're not biting off more than you can chew. And you're not just doing things for the sake of doing things, or you're not just doing things because you saw someone else is doing it and it worked, but you're focused on like, I know all those people are running fast and all those people are passing me and that's okay. I'm good with that. I'm going to sleep just fine tonight knowing I'm running my race and that's okay. Well, Grant, I know we're coming to the end of our time. Are there any final snippets of wisdom, any final takeaways that you'd like to share with the people who are listening? You know, we've touched a little bit on speaking. We've touched a little bit on entrepreneurship. We've touched on, you know, just kind of designing a life that makes sense. So what I would say is kind of an overarching idea is that everything we've covered and talked about is simple but it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And what I mean by that is, you know, if I said, what do you got to do to lose 10 pounds? Well, we all know in order to lose 10 pounds, you got to do two things. You have to pay attention to what you eat and you have to exercise. And that's it. It's very simple, but it's not easy. Like it still requires work. It still requires effort. Just realizing, all right, those are the two things I got to do. It still is so difficult. It still requires so much work to do. And so the same thing is true with everything we talked about. If you want to be a successful speaker, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, if you want to design a life on your terms, you can do those things. It's really simple what you need to do, but it's not easy. It still requires work. It still requires effort. It still requires commitment. It still requires dedication, but you can do it. Well, thank you, Grant. Where can people find you if they would like to know more about you? Yeah, everything that we do is over at thespeakerlab.com, thespeakerlab.com. The new book is The Successful Speaker, Five Steps for Booking Gigs, Getting Paid, Building Your Platform. And uh, yeah, if there's anything I can do to help and support people, I'm, I'm always happy to do so. Thank you, Grant. What are some of the key takeaways that we got from today's conversation? Here are eight. Number one, before you make a career transition, look behind the scenes because the grass is always greener until it isn't. So. Look at people who are doing the thing that you want to be doing or the, doing the thing that you think you want to be doing and observe them closely. See if you can follow them around for a day or see if you can take them out to lunch. Take a close look at what the day-to-day -day reality of their life is like for two reasons. One is so that you can be realistic about your expectations and also on the flip side so that you can assuage your fears. People are often scared of the unknown so you can take the uncertainty out of it by seeing how it's done. I think it's always helpful to look for people who are doing something similar to you and doing it in a way that you want to do it, who are a step or two ahead of that. Grant also makes the point that you shouldn't seek out examples of just anybody in your profession. He didn't look to Tony Robbins as a role model because Tony Robbins is playing on a different field at a different level. He decided to look for role models who are a step or two ahead rather than light years ahead.
He also decided to look for people whose work was similar to the type of work, the specific type of work that he wanted to be doing. People with a similar message, similar tone, topic. And by virtue of finding these role models, he took away the fear and uncertainty and also developed realistic expectations and also started forming a roadmap for how he would do it. So key takeaway number one is to look behind the scenes before you make the transition. Look for those role models one or two steps ahead of you. Key takeaway number two, write your own rules and decide what game you're playing. There are a lot of entrepreneurs who get swept away by thinking that they quote unquote need to do X and Y and Z. Like there is no shortage of advice out there about ways that you can optimize and make things better and you're leaving money on the table if you're not doing X and Y and Z. And that is the business equivalent of keeping up with the Joneses. Like, just because somebody is on Periscope doesn't mean that you need to be. You get to make the rules for the game. You get to decide what makes sense for you and what winning looks like. As Grant said, if you're interested in buying real estate, you don't need to jump in and buy 20 doors immediately. You can start small. If one or two rentals is good enough for you, then... That's cool. You don't have to keep up with the Joneses. The same can be said for any other type of business. Do you want to grow a business to the point where it's getting outside capital and you're managing 100 employees? Or are you happy with a team of four or five people? There's no choice that's better or worse. You write the rules. You do what's best for you. You decide what game you're going to play. That's key takeaway number two. Key takeaway number three. Quit your job if you don't enjoy 80% of what you're doing. What? Yeah, there are a lot of people who I think might fit this bill. Because sure, I mean, there's always going to be like 20% of your job, even your dream job, there's always going to be the 20% of it that's paperwork and admin and it's the drudgery and the, you know. But if you're not loving 80% of what you're doing, well, I mean, why are you spending a big chunk of your waking hours doing it. There are a lot of would-be entrepreneurs who don't know when is the right time to make the leap. And so this 80% idea, it's a good litmus test for do you like your job enough to stay or is it time to seriously think about making a switch? In Grant's case, he didn't think that making a switch was realistic at that time. I mean, his wife was pregnant. They didn't have any savings. but Still, he decided to go for it because he knew that he was meant for something that was bigger and that was different. And he knew that staying in the status quo carried a massive opportunity cost. That's not a good enough excuse. When I decided I was going to pursue the speaking thing, I felt like I would rather this be a train wreck and know at least I tried than to get to the end of my life and be like man, I think I could have given that a shot. Like, I I really, I think I could have made that work, but I'll never know because I didn't try. And so that is key takeaway number three. Ask yourself if you're enjoying 80% of your work. And if you're not, that might be an indicator that you should make a change sooner rather than later. Key takeaway number four, find a bridge job. There is no shame in working odd jobs if you have to while you are making some type of transition. Grant was in a situation in which the status quo was no longer acceptable. His wife felt like she had a roommate rather than a husband. He didn't want to live like that anymore. And so he waited tables. He quit his job and he waited tables 
and he worked a bunch of odd jobs with a new baby while he was figuring out what he was going to do next and while he was starting his business. Those jobs were just to really buy me time, you know, just to figure out what it was that I wanted to do. Like I still to this day, I look back on like those several months of working all those odd jobs, new baby, financially is pretty thin, figuring out how to become a speaker. Like that was really, really tough. But at the same time, like that was incredibly, it was an incredibly pivotal period of life. If you listen to our interview with Ash Amberger, she was our guest in episode 242. She said that when the chips are down, when you are forced to either sink or swim, you will swim every time. Grant has a similar message. You're smart. You're a hard worker. You'll figure it out. And so don't get stuck in all or nothing mode. That's the real takeaway here. Get rid of that all or nothing thinking. Get rid of that. It's got to be perfect or I can't make a change type of thinking because it's never perfect. It's never the right time. And if you think it needs to be, then you can waste a lot of years in the process. So that is key takeaway number four. Key takeaway number five. If you are going to work for free, make sure you're getting some type of value in return. There are a lot of creative entrepreneurs who are often told to work for free for, quote unquote, the exposure. As a writer, I've experienced this many times. And of course, there are creative entrepreneurs in a huge variety of fields, illustrators, graphic designers, photographers, video editors, voice actors, all kinds of creative entrepreneurs are often given the quote unquote opportunity to work for free. This is a very controversial issue. There are some people who say, hey, never work for free. Grant's approach, again, rejects that all or nothing thinking. It rejects the use of the word never and says instead, only work for free if you are genuinely getting some alternate value, some non-monetary value in return. It's okay to speak for free as long as you know why you're doing it. Don't just speak for free. Don't just deliver your art for free out of the goodness of your heart. The key here is to make sure that you're genuinely getting value and not just being told by the organizers that you will have some type of ambiguous, quote unquote, exposure. The value that you are getting should be specific, it should be high, and it should be so good that you would have actively sought out this opportunity. In fact, here's a litmus test. Would you pay a babysitter so that you can have the time to pursue this opportunity? And you can ask yourself that question, hypothetically, whether or not you have kids. Is this opportunity so good that you would pay a babysitter out of pocket so that you have the bandwidth to be able to pursue this? If the answer is no, well, that answers your question right there. And so that is key takeaway number five. Key takeaway number six, be aware of burnout. It's easy for anyone to head straight for burnout if you're caught up in projects and deadlines and there's a huge imbalance between your work life and your personal life. That imbalance can trash both. So how do you know when it's time to quit because your position is unsustainable? Well, Grant has a great question that you can ask yourself. If you're in the thick of it and you're starting to feel some burnout, I would ask, is this a season or is this the way it is? Another way to conceptualize this is, is this a sprint or is this a marathon? And it's almost everyone experiences sprints that are temporary. You know, there are certain seasons 
that just might require more work than others. Like Grant says, if you're an accountant, April is probably going to be a pretty busy month for you. So is March. So it's okay to temporarily have a season in which your work-life balance is untenable as long as that project has an end date in sight, an end date after which you can rest. And if you don't see that end date in sight, then you may want to reconsider what you're doing. So be aware of burnout. And if you find that your life is too imbalanced, ask yourself, is this a season or is this the way it is? So that's key takeaway number six. Key takeaway number seven, stick to your boundaries. One of my favorite quotes, this comes from James Clear. He was a guest on this show in episode 156. James Clear is an expert on building better habits. And one of my favorite quotes that comes from him is, the best productivity hack is saying no. And Grant, in our conversation today, reinforces this idea. I think I've gotten really good at saying no. Like, I have no problem saying no. Like, as entrepreneurs especially, I think it's easy to want to chase opportunities and shiny objects. And there's no shortage of things that we could be doing. Grant said there are dozens of ways that his business is leaving money on the table. But he's fine with that because he only says yes to opportunities that align with his boundaries and his values and the type of life that he wants to be leading. So stick to your values, stick to your system, stick to your boundaries. You may experience FOMO, remember the entrepreneur equivalent of keeping up with the Joneses, because that person is getting so many other cool opportunities, or maybe I should be doing X or Y because that's what so many other people are doing. But you know what? It's okay. Other people are playing a different game. Don't compare yourself. Finally, key takeaway number eight. Hire an amazing team. If you decide to go the entrepreneurial route, remember that behind every successful entrepreneur is an amazing team. Nobody can do all of this by themselves, nor should they. There are going to be many things that you need to do in your business that either don't grab your interest or don't match up with your skills. And in these cases, hire it out. I can't do everything on my own. And so I want, I want to make sure that we're building something in a way that is not the grant show. I tell our team all the time, like, this is not the grant show. And if the business is just dependent on grant showing up every day, then we're doing something wrong. If you've already hired a team, consider taking some time off or taking a sabbatical to see how well the business runs without you. At that point, you can identify different points of failure. In what ways were you still needed? In what ways does everything still rely on you? And then you can address those failure points and keep iterating so that the business becomes more systematized, more streamlined, more of a scalable and sustainable enterprise. And so those are eight takeaways from this conversation with Grant Baldwin. If you want to read a summary of all of these key takeaways, plus check out all of the resources mentioned during this conversation, like the book The E-Myth or the book Bird by Bird, you can get all of this at the show notes, which are available at affordanything.com slash episode 244. That's affordanything.com slash episode 244. While you're there, sign up for our email updates so that every week you can get delivered to your inbox a summary of that week's episode. That way you'll essentially have notes on what you've just listened to, and you can archive these, you can search your inbox. If you're trying to remember like, oh, hey, what did that guest say in that one interview that happened about six months ago? You'll have notes for all of it. So sign up 
To get the show notes delivered to you, you can sign up at the show notes for this week's episode, affordanything.com slash episode 244. Okay, now let's turn our attention to something I almost never do, which is let's talk about current events. Let's talk about what's happening in the market right now. All right, so there's been a big stock market decline. All of the headlines are screaming, worst decline since 2008. We've just seen the worst one-day drop since 2011. The headlines are screaming fear, 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 fear. Let's all go cower in our bunker and be terrified. Let's put this in perspective. Number one, the market took a 1,600-point plunge. The Dow took a 1,600-point plunge in February of 2018. Do you remember that? No. Nobody at this point remembers that because that was two years ago, and at this point, it's a non-event. And so when you see headlines that are screaming about a 1,000-point drop in a day, remember, February 2018, we had in one day a 6.2% decline. And now that we are two years removed from that, We have collectively lost our memory about it because over the quote-unquote long-term, and by long-term I mean two years, it was ultimately really a non-event. That's point number one. Point number two, the market right now is where the market was in October of 2019. So right now, as of the time of this recording, one share of the Charles Schwab Broad Market ETF which is a fund that tracks the total return of the Dow Jones U.S. broad stock market index. One share of that, as of the time of this recording, is $70.58. When was it last at that price? It was last at that price October 10th through 11th of 2019. I know there were a lot of people who throughout all of 2019 kept saying, hey, I'm getting nervous. The market has been high for a long time. We haven't had a recession in a long time. Should I keep my cash on the sidelines? Because I think this bull market has been going on for too long and I have a fear of heights, right? I got a lot of questions like that throughout 2018 and 2019. To be perfectly honest, I've been hearing questions like that since 2014. They've just intensified in recent years because as the bull market has reached a decade, making steady gains since 2009, you know, a lot of people ask, well, aren't markets cyclical? Aren't we due for a pullback? But the thing is, markets don't die of old age. And if you keep your money on the sidelines, if you sit it out because you're afraid of a pullback, then when that pullback happens, it might pull you back to a point in time that is still ahead of where you would have been. And so right now, one share of the Schwab Total Broad Market Index Fund is priced at where it was priced in October of 2019. So if back in January, February, March of 2019, you said, hey, this bull market has been going on for a decade. I'm afraid of a pullback. I'm going to just keep my cash on the sidelines. Well, if you had said that, then you would still be behind because you would have missed all of the gains that took place from January, February, March 2019 through to October 2019, which is the equivalent of where we're at right now. And that brings me to my third point, which is that many people have asked me, should I buy on the dip? In fact, on Friday, both my dad and my best friend from college were both blowing up my phone with text messages saying, hey, I'm super excited to buy on the dip. This is an amazing buying opportunity. How much should I put in? To which my reply is, 
well, hey, I'm happy that you're so excited about investing. But remember, we've rewound the clock by four months. It's currently February 2020, and we are at the same market levels that we were at in October of 2019. So the level of enthusiasm that you should have for putting money in the market right now, rationally, should be the same level of enthusiasm that you had for putting money in the market in October of 2019. We've rewound the clock by four months. That's all we've done. Congratulations. You've gotten the opportunity to travel back in time by four months. And so all of that is to say that when you see these big headlines of thousand point plunge or 13% pullback, this stuff happens all the time. Don't sit out of the market because you're worried that it might happen in the future. And conversely, don't become too irrationally exuberant about buying on the dip. And that's not to say that I'm opposed to buying on the dip. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But don't become too irrationally exuberant about it if you do happen to have a large cash position right now, because the dip isn't as dippy as the headlines might suggest. And that leads to my fourth and final point, which is I've had a few people ask me, buying on the dip is inherently a form of market timing. And most of the long-term financial planning advice out there states that market timing is a bad idea. So how do I reconcile these two concepts? My answer to that is, have a steady, fixed amount of money that you invest per paycheck or per month that you invest in a fixed periodic increment. Do not change that. That is your dollar cost averaging into the market. And those are the investments that you plan on making. That's how you put money into your 401k, into your IRA, into your 529 plan, into your HSA. And that is the sum total amount of money that you plan on investing over the span of the year. That stays steady. That doesn't change. But if something like what happened last week comes up and there's a big pullback and you feel excited like, woohoo, I get to turn back the clock four months. If that excitement leads you to investing more money than you otherwise would have so that you can make an additional contribution that you otherwise would not have made, and that additional contribution is the money that you use to buy on the dip, right? If that's money that you had previously planned on spending at restaurants this month, but you decide that you're so excited about this that you would rather pull this money out of your restaurant budget and use it to make an additional contribution, that is the appropriate way to engage in market timing. That's the appropriate way to engage in buying on the dip because you're not disrupting your stable strategy. You're not disrupting your dollar cost averaging. You are simply making contributions that you otherwise would not have made. You are picking up an extra bartending shift above and beyond one that you would have worked and using your income from that to make extra contributions. Or you're selling the junk that's in your garage on Craigslist or on Facebook Marketplace and using that money to make extra contributions. If that's the approach, then I fully support it because ultimately your contributions, not your timing, are the single biggest determinant of your investment success. And so if your enthusiasm for buying on the dip leads to additional extra contributions, then I'm all for it. 
so long as it doesn't disrupt your dollar cost averaging strategy and so long as you're not leaving cash on the sidelines in anticipation of the next recession, which unfortunately is what a lot of people have done over the span of the last five years. And that loss aversion has cost them the opportunity of months or years of compounding gains. So those are some thoughts on the stock market craziness of the past week. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend or a family member. If you know somebody who would benefit from hearing anything that we've talked about on today's show, send this episode to them. They can play this episode directly from our show notes, which are at affordanything.com slash episode 244. Or they can, of course, find this podcast on any major podcast player. Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. And speaking of those podcast players, remember to go into whatever app you're using to listen to this podcast and click the subscribe or the follow button so that you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. While you're there, leave us a review. I want to say thank you to the sponsors who made today's episode possible. Radius Bank, FrameBridge, EveryPlate, and Policy Genius. If you want a complete list of all of the coupon codes, promo codes, deals, and discounts that our sponsors offer, you can find all of that at affordanything.com slash sponsors. If you're interested in real estate investing, we have a free seven-day series on Real Estate Investing 101. You can download that for free at affordanything.com slash VIP list. If you want to chat about today's episode with other people in the community, you can find them at affordanything.com slash community. Thank you again for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything Podcast, and I will catch you in the next episode.